0: Well, our text for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. If you would turn there, please, in your Bibles, Hebrews 2 5, page 1197, if you're using one of our Pew Bibles. Well, it's been another challenging week in our world. We're recovering from the events of Louisiana and Minnesota and Dallas and Missouri, funerals ongoing. And just as we start to come to some kind of grips with this, then in another land far away, but not remote from us, over 250 people are killed by an ISIS-led coup in the nation of Turkey. These types of issues go on nearly every day in our world. And I think one of the challenges for us is to understand how we ought rightly deal with them. We can't worry our heads off. I had had a grandmother, uh, a sweet Italian lady, and she would get up every morning and she would read the local paper and she would read the obituaries and she would sit and cry over all the people that she didn't know that died and then she would get all upset for the next hour about all the things going on in the world that she couldn't control. Now, that's not to be our response. Yet at the same time, we can't take a laissez-faire, oh, it's over there, it doesn't matter to us. We can't ignore this issue. We can't ignore it because of the the smallness of the world in which we live. We can't ignore it because there is a, a nuclear component that exists within that country. We can't ignore it for a much bigger reason and that is because of the gospel. Each of those lives that were lost were lives that were created in the image of Christ. Many died apart from him. Never to know him shortly except to arrive in his presence to bend the knee and to confess that he is Lord to be eternally removed from him. We have a responsibility as those who know, because the understanding and the and the rationale behind all of these events is the same. It is the component of submission to the God of the Bible of recognizing who he is. He tells us in his word that he's revealed himself to all people at all times so that there are none that are without excuse. And yet many reject him. And we have a responsibility to carry that message forward, to share the love of Christ, and to do it right here. We were reminded in Sunday school this morning, it's not about going all over the world. It's good to do that. The message does need to go out through the world, but we need to share it at home. We need to share it at Walmart. We need to share it at the workplace. Because the gospel is the answer. It is about Christ. It is about recognizing that all men everywhere must bow the knee to Christ. And each of us must do that in a yet greater way. For there are yet still areas of our lives in which we fall short from that bowing. And that is exactly what we see in our text in Hebrews. We're in the third part of our series, Understanding Biblical Submission, in Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. I know many of you are thinking, wow, how creative is our pastor in coming up with titles? Same title three weeks in a row. If it's any indication to you, that's exactly what people thought when I named my own engineering business. You ready? solo engineering. I know, it was stunning. The creativity just kind of flows. I have some gifts, but perhaps that's not one. But again, it certainly comes to the immediate content of the message. Understanding biblical submission. Let's look again at our text in Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Understanding biblical submission. In our discussions over the last three weeks, we've been getting a significant dose of submission. But it is such an important topic. We began in verse 5 with subjection exempted. And, and you understand what it means to be exempted, to be not included, And we saw the very dramatic presentation of how God subjected the world and it was not subject to angels. And there was an oddness. There was a drama that arrived through the grammar. Because how is it, if it's not subject to angels, then it brings the natural question, well, who is it subject to? And of course the facets of verse 5 revealed that, that although it was not angels, that indeed it was to man. Angels are those who serve, those who will inherit salvation, as verse 14 of chapter 1 showed to us. And the world to come, which we inherit, as Romans 8, 17 tells us, further exemplifies that man is the one to whom the world is subject and we could also consider verses like James 2 in verse 5. In fact, it says in James 2, 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? This whole idea of being an heir, inheriting And that the world then is subject to those. We are not many who are wise. We are not many who are rich. We are not many who are powerful. And in fact, apart from Christ, we have none of those. But in Christ, we are fully complete in all of these. And it is the world to come which man is subject to. And in verse 5, it told us that it is that which we are to speak about. And if we are truly his, then we must be the proclaimers of that message. This was subjection exempted. And then last week we saw the second point in understanding biblical submission. We saw subjection expected in verses 6 and 7. Exempted from the angels but then expected for man. And there was a continuation. One point of the message that I made last week, I made a statement that said there is no such thing as racism. I want to I clarify that for a minute. I had some interaction with one of our dear families afterwards and and they were a little set off by that statement. You see, I meant that statement as a point of hyperbole, of extreme exaggeration, recognizing, of course, that racism exists in our world, but trying to draw to your attention that it is that very thing that exists not only in our world but it exists in each of our lives and our hearts and that we must root that out. But because there was an offense taken by one of our people, I wanted to bring that to your attention in case there were others who felt the same way. For when the word of God offends, then so be it. But were it I to bring offense, then I want to acknowledge that certainly the background behind the statement was in no way meant to do so. So if others were, please forgive me for that. But recognize what was trying to be brought forward, although imperfectly that there is indeed a situation that we must recognize in our world, but more so in each of us, but that is not the way that it is to be in Scripture. And this is our goal. We must eradicate the things from our life. What does Paul tell us in Colossians 3.5? To mortify the deeds of the flesh, to literally put them to death, to take the things of our flesh, to rip them apart from us, and to stomp them to death. Because they are an offense against our God. Well, the entire existence of racism is an offense, and it is an offense against biblical submission. It is an offense against God. The beautiful authority structure by which God orchestrates submission is revealed in this point in subjection expected. And that's what we saw when we went on and looked at Psalm 8, which is quoted here for us in verses 6 through 8. That that glorious bookend that began Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And then went on to display for us and to show us how all of the enemies of God are brought into submission not by mighty armies, not by the sword, not by the angelic realm, but by a suckling babe. And therein is the power of submission and the understanding of what God is doing. And a reminder to us about salvation. A verse that we're all familiar with, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. Let me read that for you again. Matthew 18 and actually beginning in verse 2. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the childlike faith that we must have. It is children who do not see the offense of racism, who do not see color in skin. It is children and their purity which we must have as we come before Christ and that we must grow in in all of our lives. We must recognize that we are sinners at the core and it is that sin that is within us that allows these things to rise up where we will not submit because we place ourselves on the throne. But God would not have it that way. Christ has died so that we would recognize that he alone is to be on the throne of our lives. And we must submit to him. And we must obey him. And this is the whole concept that lies behind our presentation. And so also in Psalm 8 the submission of a child. And it carries forward to us then to talk about who is man that you consider him. And he points that out after he speaks about God's amazing creation in Psalm 8.3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. And then goes on to our quote. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you consider him? The consideration of God's plan is that man was in Genesis 128 to be over all of God's world, over all of his dominion on an earthly basis. But man fell and death immediately resulted. Some have said, well, how does that happen, Pastor? Adam and Eve did not die as soon as they ate the fruit. In fact, we see them next hiding in the garden. Well, therein, beloved, of course, is the death There was death that occurred, as real as any death ever could. It was a spiritual death. It was the worst kind of death. It was an eternal death that separated them for all time from God. It was actually the components of physical death which became restorative, by which God allowed them to come back to him. Think of their separation from the garden. Had they have remained in the garden, they would have lived forever, and they would have lived forever apart from God but God allowed through his grace them to be back. And so it is with the Son of Man who stepped in to pay the price. As God stepped in to make provision for Adam and Eve, so also as the first Adam failed, the last Adam came in to take his place. The one who restored all things that the world to come could indeed be subject to man. As Hebrews 2.5 tells us, Because man first needed to be restored, he was fallen. He was separated. We are fallen. We were separated from Christ. We lived in the lust of our flesh and in the darkness of our own hearts and minds until God restored us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us. But God, being rich in mercy, with which he loved us, brought us the grace of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw all of the the you phrases there in verses 6, 7, and 8. Look at them six different times, showing us that God is the one who orchestrates all of this. Well, there is one more element of subjection and it's revealed in our third point. We saw subjection exempted. We saw subjection expected. And our third point today is subjection accepted. Subjection accepted. Look at verses 7 to 9 with me again, won't you please? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The connection to Jesus as the Son of Man in these verses is explicit. Verse 9 directly carries forward these ideas. In verse 7, it notes that he was made for a little while lower than the angels. That shows a short duration, and it also shows that there was a reduction in status. Jesus, who was eternal and with God the Father for all times, was made for a little while, a short period lower than the angels. Those who would argue that this, this verse references men and not the Son of Man, Christ, have to come up and explain how a little while is all of history from Adam's fall until the final redemption of Christ. Christ. No, this is definitely Jesus who's being referenced. It is also him who is being crowned with glory and honor as verse 9 confirms and verse 7 in the quote of Psalm 8, 5b shows us. Verse 7c proclaims as being over the works of your hands. Now we didn't mention that man was designed to be over the works of God's hands on this earth. But keep in mind the reference in Psalm 8 as we read in verse 3 was the moon and the stars and all of the created order. Man is never made subject over those elements. Only Christ is the one who reveals and rules over them. And that we see in the sixth seal of Revelation 6.13 and forward when it is broken by the Lamb, by Christ who rules over the earth, and the stars. These verses are all focusing on the Son of Man and Jesus, and in verse 8, our topic of subjection comes fully to the fore. The you here in verse 8 is God the Father, as we've shown. Likewise, the His of His feet is the Son of Man. It is Jesus. This reminds us back to Psalm 110, which we talked about three weeks ago in our message at Father's Day. How God has made him, made his enemies subjected under his feet. And then the rest of verse 8 carries forward our third point of subjection accepted. It tells us that all things have been subjected to him, that is, to the Son of Man. Nothing has not been subjected to him. I, I realize that's not good English. Nothing has not been subjected. Um, But, you know, when it's in the Bible, I don't get too uptight about grammar issues. I don't think we should. But the kicker comes in the last clause there of verse 8, where it says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Well, Well, what is this? What is it that is not yet subjected to our Christ? We must ask these kind of questions when we look through the word of God, not merely read over them what is it that is not subjected well to get the answer to this i'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of first corinthians and to chapter 15 first corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 is where we'll be going its page 1152 if you're using a pew bible the text is the full description here of subjection that we're going to look at in first corinthians 15 now we've gone back we've studied psalm 110 We've studied Psalm 8 because we wanted to know the full context that the author was bringing forward. So also in 1 Corinthians 15, we want to know exactly what God's telling us. We don't want to be proof texting and pulling something out of context, but knowing just what's being spoken about. And to recognize that what the author of Hebrews is saying, as the good Bereans that you are, we want to go back. We want to look and see what's being talked about 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the the largest sections on this topic in all of Scripture as it discusses Jesus' subjection. And in 1 Corinthians 15 1 through 11, we had that wonderful presentation of the gospel Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Many scholars saying the most powerful gospel proclamation in Scripture. If you wonder, what am I going to share with my neighbors? What am I going to carry forward? Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. That is an excellent place for you to start in understanding the gospel and bringing it to those around you. Paul makes this powerful presentation of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And it is really the resurrection which carries so much weight with Paul. Resurrection, beloved, is what distinguishes Christianity. Think about that. Every other, in fact, we again spoke about this in Sunday school a bit this morning. Every other religion is committed and sincere in their beliefs about what they hold to. Only one religion has a risen Savior. That is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It is the only one that carries forward this point. Resurrection is the main component. It is the essence of Romans 10.9, which we often talk about, that if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must believe that he was raised from the dead. This is the unique component of Christianity. And as Jesus was raised, so also will we be. Paul argues strongly for the witness of Scripture in verses 3 and 4 where he concludes both verses by saying, according to the Scripture, according to the Scriptures. And then he presents the witness to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. How it was brought forward to six different witnesses, to Peter, to the 12, to more than 500, to the Lord's brother James to all of the apostles, and lastly, to Paul. And then in verses 12 to 19, Paul argues that without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. This is the foundation. Beloved, what happens when a building has no foundation? You know, in Idaho, a lot of the homes that were built were built on rubble foundations. They were, you know, there were a lot of poor people that came in very quickly, and so they would stack rocks And they would build their home on stacked rocks. How secure do you suppose that was? In an area that had huge snow loads that created a lot of adverse weight on a foundation and earthquakes that would shake those rocks. I mean, there's no mortar, just rocks. Do you think that's a foundation you'd like to have your home on? I don't think so. And they didn't last very long. There was a lot of problems with that. Well, so also Paul establishes that without the foundation of the resurrection of Christ, we too are like a house that is built with no foundation and it has no value. But then in verse 20 to 28, he presents the order of the resurrection and the text we want to look at this morning. This is our text that defines the full realm of subjection. I want you to note that carefully, that there is a connection here between the resurrection and subjection. If you're a note taker, that might be a good point to put down. That there is a direct connection between resurrection and subjection. And we're going to see that as a key component in our discussion today. Let's look at these verses beginning in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Paul begins by restating the basic truth. Basically, that Jesus is resurrected. Not only it is the key point in the gospel presentation, but it is the key point in understanding submission. Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep many have said well, well what about this whole idea of asleep I mean e- even the disciples were confused when the Lord used the term and they said when it was when they were speaking about Lazarus well Lord if he's asleep he'll wake up and Jesus said no he is dead and he confirms that phrase being used of those who are dead we see it also back in verse 6 of 1st Corinthians 15 After he had appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So also in Acts 7.60 regarding Stephen when he is being martyred, as he prayed, Father forgive them, he breathed his last and fell asleep. Asleep is a term for death very clearly. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, a very familiar text to us and so wonderful to consider. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Again, sleep is referencing those who have died, but, but there is a great hope in this for those who have died in Christ. And we must not grieve as those who have no hope. This isn't saying don't grieve. Not at all. We absolutely will grieve and we must grieve and it is right. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We indeed have a hope. We have a living hope. And that's what's carried forward in verse 14 and following. Let me read them for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, again, our focus on the resurrection, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There is tremendous comfort in our understanding of the resurrection and in the order of the resurrection, God does not leave us wondering, well, how's this going to work? He does not want us worrying about those who have passed away. He says, this is how it is going to happen. This is the sequence of the rapture. When that trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will be raised. And won't that be an amazing thing? I can't wait to see it. I, I rejoice when I am at the graveside of a believer. Knowing that one day these tombs are going to fly open. It's exactly what happened in Matthew 52, 27, or 27, 52. Imagine what that was like. Well, we may not have to imagine should the Lord return while we are here. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. And this is the comfort. This is the order of the resurrection. Do not be concerned, do not wonder about what will happen. God has that all in control. 1 Corinthians will add more to this shortly. Notice Jesus there in 1 Corinthians 20 is not said to be asleep, but to be dead. Now, why has that happened? Well, there's no difference in the physical condition that's being spoken of, but there are so many that are attacking Jesus' resurrection. Think about that. He, He must make a strong point. What did the Jews do? They took the Roman soldiers after the Lord was resurrected, they brought them into town and they paid them off to tell everyone, took a whole Roman centurion group and paid them off to go talk to everyone that Christ was not raised from the dead. The Jews just said he didn't die. The Gnostics said that Although he died, it wasn't God who died because the deity left him before the crucifixion. Everyone is attacking this. So he makes a strong point to say, yes, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul's contradicting all of these by using the word dead. If others are dead, then we simply say they have fallen asleep. But certainly Jesus more so. And Jesus alone was raised from the dead. Paul carries this whole notion forward in verses 21 to 22 where he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This takes us back to our hope of 1 Thessalonians 4. This is our understanding that we too who believe in Christ will be raised with him but it is only those who are believers. It is true that all will be resurrected. One group to a resurrection of eternal life, another group to a resurrection of eternal punishment. We can go back to Daniel 12.2 and see the Old Testament speak about it. We can go to John 5 and verse 25 and see the New Testament. So all people are eternal, but only those who experience eternal life are those of the believers. The rest, eternal punishment. Notice the key component of verse 21 and 22 is the word dead. Three times it is used there to emphasize the effect of what had happened to Christ. And then in verse 23, we come to the formal order of discussion at hand. Verse 23 says, but each in his own order... Christ, the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. The, the subject of order is initially revealed for us here, and, and now we see this aspect of firstfruits, which was brought to us in verse 20. When, what comes to your mind when you think of firstfruits? Perhaps Exodus and the firstfruit offering, the Feast of Weeks, perhaps, Pentecost, which was to be celebrated 50 days after the barley harvest. Incidentally, exactly the time frame we studied in the book of Ruth. But think a, more, a bit more deeply about this idea of first fruits. Why was God's command to, be, to bring the first fruits to him not an oppressive command? Why was it not... Unjust to take the first fruits that had come up after the farmer has worked and toiled and now to bring that to God. Of course, he is God and he can do whatever he wants, but he is never unjust. He is never unfair. Apparently, though, some have thought so. Apparently, Cain had a little problem with bringing his first offering to the Lord of his first fruits. Statistics show the same is true in some churches today. So why wasn't this unfair? Because there's more to come, right? When it comes to us and our giving beloved, it's been said and well said that you cannot outgive God. And when it comes to this understanding of first fruits, the reason it was right to bring the first fruits is the whole rest of the harvest was yet to follow. There was no deprivation that was going on in God's request. Quite the contrary. It showed a heart of submission. It showed a heart that was willing to yield the first and all of the hard work. Not take it to yourself, not glean a little bit, not an Ananias and Sapphira. We're just going to hold a little bit back. But to bring it to God, to understand He is the one who brings all bounty to us. Is there anything that we have that is not God's? Do we have wonderful jobs or homes because of our own giftedness? Who gave us the mind to think? Who gave us the job to work? Who gave us the body to be able to carry that forward? It is all of God, all of Christ. So also with Christ as the first fruits, there were more to come. And that is us, beloved, after those who are Christ at his Coming. That word coming is the word parousia, and it, and it references the entire second coming of Christ. It is not a single event. The coming of Christ begins at the rapture. Keep in mind, he does not come to the earth at the rapture. He comes down into the air, and the dead in Christ meet him there, as we just read. And then we who are alive and remain together will join them in the air, and we shall always be forever together with the Lord. It is then after the tribulation that he returns at the battle of Armageddon and throughout the millennial reign of Christ. So the coming of Christ is an event and and it's an event like none others that we're ever going to see. But praise the Lord for those of us that know him, we will participate in that event. Well, we've discussed it before and this is the entire focus here. Verse 24 then explains the end of the order where it says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. In the end, Jesus hands the kingdom back to God. Jesus is now the rightful king. He has been the rightful king since his first advent. The book of Matthew is all about that. The theme of the book of Matthew is Jesus as king. He is the rightful king and heir. But he will return that to God the Father when he has abolished all enemies. When he has abolished all rule, all authority, all power those being the forces that are hostile to God. Verse 25 further illuminates verse 24 for us, where it says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This confirming the duration of Jesus' reign. He reigned from his first advent until such time as all enemies are put under his feet. And again, flashing in our mind is Psalm 110 and verse 1. And then verse 26 carries us to the end of the order, where it says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is the last enemy. This is the answer to our question from Hebrews 2.8. What is it that is not fully subject yet to the Son of Man? Death is one of those enemies that is not yet fully subject. Now keep in mind, it is also not fully independent. God is still in control. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. For we know that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. That when our beloved who die in Christ pass out of this world, they pass immediately. To the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an amazing reality that is. So also. Are these things that are not subject. The rulers. And the authorities. And the powers. They are not yet fully subject. They are. Not fully independent as well. But do we not hear repeatedly in Scripture about them? Is that not what First Peter five nine says? Where in First Peter five he tells us in, in verse eight actually, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We are under constant attack, beloved. He is out there. He wants to take us down. He wants to take your family down. He wants to see that fight in that husband and wife that starts to separate and tear apart the fabric of a marriage. He wants to bring in those catastrophic circumstances in your life that begin to make you question God. How can God be God if these things are happening? And those are all lies from the pit of hell. Ephesians 6:12 tells us for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against and listen to these words against the rulers against the powers against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Beloved the root of all that we have seen in the last 2 weeks is embedded in these two verses. These are the attack from hell against those who would seek to exalt Christ. God loves these kind of things. He loves to empower these radical sects that are going to come in and kill and destroy, to steal and to maim, because that is his focus. There were some in that group, to be certain, that knew the Lord in Turkey this week. And he loves to draw that kind of attention and to draw believers in asking, how could God allow this to happen? God allows these things to happen because of the wickedness and sin of this earth so that we get a clearer picture of what he is doing and that he is bringing all things to restoration. Go read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and understand how God is working through these circumstances. These terms rule and authority and power they're used repeatedly throughout the scripture 1 Corinthians of course 15:24 Ephesians 6:12 but often in Colossians and Ephesians in fact if you want to have a wonderful word study and be a good Berean dive into Colossians 1:16 and see that these who Christ has exercised creative power over are the same a wonderful study Well, the reality of these forces today is very clear to us. Well, now we have the answer to the question of what is as yet not fully subject to Christ. But the main component of subjection, it lies in verses 27 and 28. Look at them with me, won't you please? For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. These are the capstones of our discussion on subjection. Now you can also find a very complex discussion of pronouns in there. You start moving through the he's and the hymns to understand who is God the Father and who is God the Son, and you will spend a little time there. And we do not have time, nor are we going to endeavor into that. I will encourage you, it is an incredible study. I have done it, and it will bless you mightily. And if you want to endeavor into it on your own, the key is Psalm 110, verse 1. It will unlock that sequence of pronouns that goes on. In fact, we could take that discussion all the way back to verse 24. But what is most important to us is in verse 28, particularly the aspect of the son's submission to the father. The very use of the word son in verse 28 is extremely rare by Paul in 1 Corinthians. It's used only one other time in the entire 16 chapters, and it's in 1 Corinthians 1.9. The only place it occurs in 2 Corinthians, again, one time in 2 Corinthians 1.19. This is a direct connection to the Son of Man back from Hebrews 2.8. These two verses are correlating one with another. The key component here, beloved, is that Jesus himself was subject to God. Let that settle in your mind for just a minute as you turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 2 and we put a bow on this section of scripture. As you're turning to Hebrews 2, ask yourself, in what ways was Jesus submissive to the Father? Yes, and turning over the kingdom back to him at the end. Now that's no small matter. Imagine a king today turning over his reign. Imagine the the queen of England saying, you know, I'm just fine, I'm done, I'm going to turn this over to someone else. Imagine the president of the United States saying, you know, I got a few months left but I really don't care. I'm just going to go ahead and turn this thing over to my vice president. That's never going to happen. So this turning back over in this submission and returning the kingdom is not a small thing. But in what ways prior to that can I suggest a couple to you? Well, in short, he was submissive and subject in everything. John 4 and verse 34 speak of that, and also John 6 and 38 in 4 and 34 and 6 and 38, it conveys that Jesus' only purpose was to do the will of the Father. And that he did nothing on his own initiative. Doing the will of another is submission. By definition, it is voluntarily placing yourself under the headship of Another. So Jesus did and was submissive in everything. He was also submissive in his suffering. Listen to Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Learning obedience is submission. And Jesus did so in suffering. But more specifically, he was obedient to the point of death as Paul tells us in Philippians 2.8. In Philippians 2 and 8, it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is just what Hebrews 12.2 confirms as well when it says, and it tells us, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, this is the ultimate picture of submission. This is what Hebrews 2.9 is talking about. Paul says there in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, but we do not... Or, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He was obedient in suffering. He was obedient in death. He was obedient in everything. This is how the resurrection is tied to submission. The first Adam failed. And so the last Adam was submissive in all things so as to achieve resurrection, so as to achieve resurrection for all of us as we become the redeemed through him. Beloved, God is not asking any of us to taste death for another person more so even the power of death is greatly lessened to those who are the children through his word but there are many areas in which he is commanding us to be submissive this is the problem in our world they will not submit they will not come down off the throne of their own making well what is it that we must submit in First is in the area of salvation. You must recognize and reassess. Paul continued to preach the gospel to himself. Beloved, so also must you. If you have any question about whether you know Christ, you must recognize that you are a sinner. You must fall on your knees in confession to Christ. And seek to turn and to repent and to live a new life. To acknowledge him as savior but to acknowledge him as Lord and master. That everything in your life must be brought into obedience to this book. He tells us a few of these and I mentioned them at our first message. Let me share them with you again and if you find there are areas in your life that you are struggling in this area of submission, write it down. Submission to employers, often a very difficult thing, particularly for those that are not believers. Submission to government, how hard is it to submit to a government who directly contradicts the truth of the word of God? But who is the one who establishes government? Romans 13 tells us. Submission to husbands, how much more difficult for our wives who have unbelieving husbands. Submission to the call that no woman is to teach a man. Submission to church teachers. Submission to elders. Submission to one another. And ultimately submission to God. Every element of God's word we must submit ourselves to. And there are areas that every one of us rear our heads and the hackles on our neck go up and we say, I won't submit to that. I won't do that. And yet, the only way that we can live in obedience is to follow our Savior and to be submissive in all things like Christ. We're each enthroned upon the self-made kingdoms in some area, probably one of those eight. Now the question becomes, will you commit to submit in these areas? Will you submit to being accountable to another person? Our lesson from Titus on dealing with one another and on discipleship and accountability is no longer theoretical, now intensely practical. Will you obey God's command to disciple one another and to acknowledge ways in which you are disobedient in your submission? If our Savior submitted in all things, how much more should we? Jesus was so obedient in suffering to the point of death, even death on the cross, that he might taste it for all of us. Love do we not owe the greatest response to him to find ways in which we fall short and to then submit. May God grant us the strength that we would recognize the ways in which we fall short today and to acknowledge to our spouse, another one close to us, that these are our areas of need and that he would be pleased to build this body and to strengthen us to go forth in the power of Christ through the truth that we see in what he did for us.